introduction. And, uh, and as one said, so I'm a, I'm a PhD candidate here at Oxford in my third year and just came back um, in January from 16 months of field work in Colombia, where I primarily worked with uh, um, young people, adolescents in um, areas of the countries that, uh, that are rather marginalized. So I mainly worked in um, a town called San Carlos um, and um, the city Medellin, which is relatively close to San Carlos, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about, about the context um, later on. But uh, this is just to say, these are sort of, is one of the first academic presentations I'm giving, and so these are um, rather preliminary findings. But um, I think this was a very good opportunity because, as, as Gwen said in her case, uh, really the concept of positive peace really resonated as I was trying to explore these young people's perceptions of peace um, in a context that, where peace is all around the media, really, and the and, and adults talk a lot about that. And when I was talking to young people about it, and I saw all the complexities with which they, they define peace, I think this concept really resonated as a theoretical frame to talk about it. Um, but first of all, why, um, why, why was it interesting to talk about youth? I mean, there is a general consensus in the peace building and development literature that uh, sort of engaging young people and making them participate and, and, and feel that they belong to the peace process of a country is very important for, uh, for peace to last, right? Because obviously they will be the adults of tomorrow and all that. And this, and this is obviously an understanding that is common in Colombian universities and also in the political sphere. And after the uh, plebiscite, so the peace referendum that, that, was, that took place in, uh, um, in August in Colombia, and that, uh, oh, sorry, in October, um, and, that, uh, and that was um, you know, very much covered in the media and, and when um, what the news that got here was that Colombians voted no to peace. And after that, there was a lot of emphasis in Colombian media on the mobilization of young people, especially in the capital, Bogota, um, where a lot of um, really active youth movements uh, marched in the streets of Bogota. It was a very emotional moment. Uh, people really uh, sort of pushed for the agreement to go forward, despite the result of the referendum. And so there was a lot of emphasis on this idea that young people want peace. And this was certainly true for important sectors of, of society. Um, however, we also know that from a lot of literature, and this is no news really on, on Latin America in general and on Colombia as well, that young people are some of uh, the major victims but also perpetrators of violence. Um, both in more formally recognized armed groups like guerrillas or paramilitaries in the past, but also today um, in the newly emerging sort of post-demobilization armed groups or urban gangs or simply, you know, little combos, little uh, armed groups uh, in small neighborhoods. It's really males between, say, 13 years old to 35 that are the main sort of perpetrators of this violence. And so the question of how youth, and especially male youth, relates to peace building and or, or perpetration and violence, I think needs to be contextually unpacked and reflected upon. And that's why I was interested in this question. Now, I think before moving on, I mean, Gwen has given you a lovely introduction, but, um, but I think I will, I just want to uh, flag the main um, sort of developments in recent years related to the peace process as such. Um, 
in Colombia. So um, people talk of a 60 years old conflict, although um, some literature emphasizes how that's much the wake of the wave of violence is actually much longer in the country. Um, in 2005, and uh, sorry, and the, and the conflict was historically between guerrillas. Um, so more the left-wing inspired movement, paramilitaries uh, emerged as a response, and the government, which um, formally countered both groups, but actually um, often um, in the era of Uribe especially, uh, sided with the paramilitaries. Um, in 2005, there was an important demobilization of the paramilitaries, which was not very transparent, and uh, whose members today, some of which are constituting and sort of part of newly emerging uh, post-demobilization armed groups. Um, in 2012, the negotiations that have just concluded now um, started, they lasted four years, and in, in 2016, there was the achievement of a major peace agreement. Um, which was much celebrated, put to popular vote in October, as I said, rejected by a thin majority. Despite that, um, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded um, to President Santos a few weeks later. And uh, in November, and then a revised version of the agreement or a second agreement was uh, passed through Congress, avoiding a second popular vote. Um, and implementation started in January. Um, and in January, also negotiations with the second uh, major guerrilla group, LN, um, started. So this, of course, is a major political development. It's everywhere in Colombia, in, in the news in Colombia and worldwide. And it's generally portrayed in the world as a peace-building success story. So obviously, the Nobel Peace Prize, but also a great uh, sort of very active engagement of the UN. Um, and I mean, as a disclaimer, perhaps from for what I'm going to say in the rest of the presentation, I do think this is a major development. And I do think the Colombian example can serve as a model in a lot of ways. Um, however, as we all know, and we are here, peace agreement doesn't equal peace building. Um, there are persisting challenges in Colombia. Corruption you know, is a major one, still one of the most uh, corrupt countries in the world, according to many indexes, as well as, as we mentioned before, the return to violence of people that were mobilized, demobilized in 2005, plus other uh, basically marginalized young, especially males, that don't find job opportunities and find in these new post-demobilization armed groups the only option uh, for life. That's very often the case. And so, for example, the region of Choco um, is one of the most marginalized regions, is being taken over. Um, these days uh, by these new groups that are not easily identified. It's a very complicated issue. And um, you might have heard a lot of um, human rights activists are being killed, and this is one of the major concerns. Um, I think it's more than 30 only this year. So, um, of course, there are problems still to be solved. What did I do in my research? So I went, I was interested in understanding how young people perceived this whole debate about and what they thought their role was in it. And I chose to go to San Carlos, which is a small town in the Antioquia region, which is traditionally a region that supports um, Uribe, so the opposition to the president that supported the peace agreement. So this is important to contextualize my findings, I think. But I chose this town because it's generally portrayed in Colombia as a model for peace building. Um, Effectively, the town has been very affected by the conflict, but since 10 years ago, it's more or less at peace. Um, 
and it has been the object of a lot of reparation, reconciliation, memory building policies. There are a lot of victims organizations that have been really vocal in promoting this idea of reconciliation. And so it's, it's generally flagged as an example of successful peace building in the country. Um, and it's a lot in the news for that as well. However, um, the country voted no, sorry, the, the town voted no to peace as well. So the no won in the referendum. So I think that tells quite a lot about how people locally sort of perceive um, uh, yeah, the peace building project more generally. And, and this is one of the main reasons why I was interested specifically in going to this town. I had contact in the local school, etc. They were telling me um, young people are full of problems in this town. You know, they drop out of school, they smoke up weed all day, um, they move between the town and the city, Medellin, um, which is very close, by, well, four hours away, so relatively close from Colombia. And they, um, they go there, they engage with urban gangs, they come back, they sell drugs. All these sort of things. So I was interested in unpacking this. I thought that there was interesting material, and effectively, um, there was, um, because the town really allowed me to—and these are actually pictures from the town—to really see the different types of young people that were present there, and that youth as a category is not a homogeneous one. And we can't really talk of what the youth say or what young people say in general, right? Because in the town there were the peace activists. Uh, really successful youth organizations that really believed in peace and tried to promote it. But there were also Santiago and his friends, and some of my main informants, that moved between the town and the city and, and spent their days selling drugs and saying that they didn't care at all about the peace. And so I think it really sort of allowed me to, to, to see both sides. And, and sometimes I'm afraid that the literature that talks about youth and peace buildings, perhaps for lack of time or resources or access, tends to focus a little bit more on the peace activists because they are easier to reach and because they are more willing to engage and to talk to researchers. Whereas the other youth very often will just turn their back at you and not want to talk to you. And uh, granting access was a complex process that I'm happy to talk more about in the Q&A perhaps. Um, but this is, this is my point. So do we talk about youth, which youth? And, you know, the, the youth are not all the same. And other authors, Sommers and Utas and others, have noted this a lot in the context of, of um, Sub-Saharan Africa. So I think it's a bias, the bias of focusing on organized youth only, which is not only specific to Colombia, but it's more general. Um, and so uh, trying to understand through French's ideas of intersectionality that identity is not just we can't classify identity across one variable like age and say that you think all the same, but that, that their opinions and their behaviors and their attitude are really shaped by other variables as well, such as, in my case, class, degrees of exclusion, and also gender. Um, so I thought for the purposes of, of the presentation of today, I mean, most of my most useful data really came from standard ethnographic engagement with the youth. But I also did, as a side project, a short documentary, which was a participatory documentary, where I was inviting the young people in town to um, express their ideas about the piece. And uh, what I think was interesting of this project, which was totally voluntary, is that, totally by chance, but it gave me a quite good um, sort of sample of the different types of youth that could be found in town. 
Um, and so um, what I wanted to do is show you a little expert of, uh, excerpt of the documentary and then comment on the different narratives of peace that emerge from it. Um, just I can talk more as well about how I made the documentary, but um, I just want to emphasize, so we, we, we met over the course of, of nine months uh, with these youth and uh, every week and they decided what themes to talk about, they learned to use cameras and they shot the documentary and they interviewed each other and I had more of a role to play in the editing. So um, I think, well, it obviously has technical imperfections and it's not nearly as far as beautiful as Gwen's documentary but it's an expression it's a way for them, it was a way for them to express sort of their ideas about uh, this. Uh, and so let's see, <laughs> I managed to get out of this. And yes. So, uh, this is the bit where um, they ask each other about the the peace process as such. Before this, they have talked a lot about peace within the family, within the school, and within their community, so more smaller conceptions. Tanto entre ellos como con los propios hijos, ellos van a ser unidos violentos porque eso fue lo que ellos recibieron. Sí, escuchar los procesos políticos de paz. El proceso de paz es un gran cambio en Colombia porque llevan más de medio siglo en esa guerra contra las FARC y si es bueno que termine ya con esa guerra. La guerrilla es una parte muy, muy fundamental de la guerra. Entonces, si acaba la, la guerrilla, se acaba una, una muy buena parte de la guerra. A mí me parece que la paz en el país es alcanzable. Pues porque aunque aún hay mucha tasa de violencia, mucha tasa de, de grupos, de barrio, pues se está cambiando mucho las cosas, las cartas se están volteando. Yo quiero ser del, del ejército, eh, porque quiero un país, un país en paz, entonces que nos quiero aportar a eso. Me gustaría meterme al ejército, porque a mí no me gustaría que, que hubiera paz, porque... ¿Por qué? Porque Santo, el presidente de Colombia, le está entregando todo, todo el país a la guerrilla. Y a mí de eso no, no me puse de acuerdo porque, porque la guerrilla mató a mi padre. Para mí la paz es, es la liberación del de dolor es encontrarse a sí mismo, es sentir que, que estás vivo nuevamente, es perdonar. En mi corazón todavía existe venganza. Desde que esa gente mató a mi familia, antes yo quiero hacer lo mismo con ellos. No es que suene un poco como violento, pero... Que hay un poco de paz y no la hay. Está aumentando la guerra porque estamos generándola nosotros mismos. Porque si tal vez hay paz, sí, allí en La Habana o que se firmó un contrato por medio de simples hojas que dejaron las armas, pero no todos. Así como un guerrillero puede dejar un arma, un muchacho.
muchacho pudo coger otra. Y de esos chiquiticos los incitan a eso, pues para no caer. Porque, como te digo, la paz uno mismo la encuentra, ¿no es cierto? Pero lo que está sucediendo es que es paz. Esa paz que afirma el gobierno de Colombia, no sé cuántos otros gobiernos, la paz no es cierta. Tal vez haya paz allá, pero no hay mucha violencia en otros lados. En las ciudades se nos ve tranquilo porque siente que nada atracar. Y eso, eso no es paz. Para mí que la paz. Nada, que la paz. No sé. Que no va a haber guerra, pero en ese país hay mucha guerra, mucho conflicto. El narcotráfico, el microtráfico, la violencia común. Yo estoy en Medellín, me toca eso en los barrios. En Calazán, en Bosa, toda parte de bicho y conflicto. La guerra siempre ha existido. Desde, desde años atrás, desde que comenzó todo, entonces no creo que la guerra se vaya a acabar. La guerrilla, la paz y los paracentales siempre van a existir. Paz, yo creo que nunca va a haber paz. No, no solo por lo de la guerrilla y los paramilitares, sino la, la violencia común. Por ejemplo, aquí en Colombia alguien roba y entonces ya el, mandan a, ese manda a matar al otro y así ya se, se, se forma una cadena de muerte. Eso no se acaba, la guerra no se acaba nunca. Eso está desde los siglos pasados. No, yo no quiero ninguna paz. Si hay guerra o no, para mí es igual. La paz, para mí la paz es una estar tranquilo con La paz es vivir, vivir la realidad bien. Según los drogaditos, eh, la misma marihuana le da paz. Porque se pone que lo relaja. La paz comienza por nosotros en la casa. Porque si a mí en mi casa me golpean, eh, me insultan, yo voy a hacer lo mismo en la calle. Como me tratan en la casa, lo hago en la calle. La paz del país es relacionada con la paz en los colegios, en el hogar. Porque como lo decía la misma frase, eh, la paz empieza desde nosotros mismos. Cada uno siembra su paz, la que lleva al colegio y al hogar. Allí se va haciendo a más multitudes hasta llegar a contagiar a todo un país. La paz la hacemos cada quien dentro de nosotros, ¿sí me entiendes? Yo creo que los niños sí pueden enseñarle a, a los... So I think uh, uh, this gives um, a bit of, uh, I think, a good overview of sort of different emerging narratives of peace. As you see, they don't agree, right? And this was a very interesting thing <laughs> for me to find out. There was 
a lot of the youth literature uh, really thinks, uh, really um, emphasizes this idea that young people would have a common narrative against the adult population on a certain issue. But this is really not what I found. I found great divergence. With, and I think when you do ethnography, you often sort of find that and impact categories. So I, I'll quickly run through the different sort of narratives about peace that I think re reflect different types of young people that I could observe. So there is the peace activist, right? Peace is, peace is possible and things are changing. And this, this was a present narrative in town. I was sad to see it was not very common. And that also explains sort of the electoral result. Um, a, a very common understanding and idea was that peace is different from the peace process. So this is what Alani said. The peace push forward that the government is fake. Other people um, often told me, and this is, was amongst youth, but also adults alike. The peace process is just a corrupt business. The peace agreement is just a piece of paper. Obviously, this comes from misinformation, as, fake was, uh, as, uh, as Gwen was saying, uh, fake news was a, was a big issue at the time. But this was a common a common understanding. And so this rejection of the idea of peace as a political peace process led a lot of young people, especially young girls, and this is where gender comes in, to see peace as inner tranquility. So peace is something you can only find inside yourself. Peace is inner peace, is sort of feeling at peace with yourself. And this is a narrative that doesn't just come out of, of people's head, and I think it's very influenced by a series of programs that were implemented, especially in this town, because it was the object of so much in psychological intervention. And for example, the, the reparations unit in Colombia has very much this sort of tendency to, uh, when it works with victims, to emphasize the importance of finding peace, um, psychological peace. And another related narrative was that peace starts from home, right? Peace is interpersonal relationships and good relationships with, between children and parents, between parents themselves. And, and again, this is a narrative that is very common in international development, in international organizations, and also local NGOs, which put a lot of emphasis on the importance of starting peace from relationships, which obviously is and I recognize and, and could sort of back that up with data from my field. It's a very important aspect of peace. However, it's also a very apolitical aspect of peace. And I think the reason why these international organizations promote that is that it, it then takes the focus away from all political dimensions of peace, like redistribution of resources and wealth, right? And so these dominant narratives of peace, peace as interpersonal relationships and peace as inner tranquility, um, really sort of obscured the political dimension of peace, which really didn't come up in these young people's narratives, and, and I would say also in narratives of people in general in town. And so the, the risk then is to move to this conception of peace as rather than engagement with the rest of society, withdrawal from the rest of society. So this is where Alejandro's, you know, um, somehow funny phrase comes in. Drugs addicts say that smoking marijuana makes them feel at peace. Another guy once told me, you need to have smoked lots of weed to even just start imagining. <laughs> I mean, I laughed at the time, but then I thought this is the perfect title for one of my chapters, you know, because it really shows peace is escaping from reality. Peace is deleting the idea that you can do something. It's just saying relax, basically, right? And so when we understand it, we start understanding better why Santiago says to me whether there is war or not is totally irrelevant. I don't care about peace. I don't want peace, but I really don't mind in the end. Because 
because it's not a relevant category for me. And um, I think for, for time, I think I'll skip an anecdote I was going to tell here. And, but, and, 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 you know, eventually, um, Jose's, you know, Jose's almost difficult to, to answer the question, what is this, nothing, I don't know. I think it really reflects this, the sense that for some people who have lived, and you know, Jose has a very, uh, had a very difficult life and, and he moved back and forth from the city, very difficult relationship with his family. He just couldn't conceptualize peace because he had never lived it. And so, and I think we have to recognize that in this context, sometimes peace is the exception rather than the norm. And it's not only that he had witnessed several types of violence in his, in his life, but also that peace, sorry, that, that being violent and, and, and sort of thinking of violence rather than peace was a central component of his identity construction. So this is a quote from one of my conversations with him. You know, he says, your family ignores you, everyone ignores you, the only thing they tell you is that you're a bad kid. So you start thinking that behaving badly is the only thing that can make a difference. So that others start seeing you, that the, that's the only thing I want. And the, the only time when others see you is when you do bad things. So this was a very common sort of understanding of themselves as bad kids that came up, especially with um, you know, young people like Jose who had this type of, of sort of upbringing. And so just to go towards the conclusion and again reemphasize my point that youth is not a homogeneous category that depending on their life situation, they really have sort of different understandings of this. And very often we tend to focus on this end of the spectrum because they are young people that are organized or at least that are willing to engage in some kind of politically correct narrative about this. But what, the, what about the other youth, the, the ones towards the other end of the spectrum that are very often those who cause the problem and, and I emphasize this, uh, sort of, those who are seen as causing the problem. And so when we think about, you know, things like the 20, 2250 resolution on, on consulting youth on their ideas of peace, well, what youth are we consulting? Because they call that they are, that just these days they were calling for consul regional consultations and they were really calling at peace activists. And, and what about the non-organized youth? What do they have to say? Why are some left out? And I think, just to conclude, because I'm aware of time, the question why are some youth left out really, you know, resonates with Galton's conceptualization of negative versus positive peace. This idea that negative peace is absence of violence, but that positive peace is absence of structural violence. And structural violence, he conceptualizes that as social injustice. So positive peace would be social justice. And this is clearly not present even in the peace building model, which is the town of San Carlos. So I think it really prompts some thinking of how we are thinking about peace building in Colombia, and perhaps even more generally. Um, so, you know, that's why sort of the question mark at the end, what type of positive peace are we thinking about? Are we really thinking of being inclusive and sort of including people that have a less politically correct narrative, but also perhaps less willingness to engage?